I'm Bill Lawrence, and this is my Big Bag of Onions. They got from Maine to California, broken hearts and fossil known. And through this night we'll share a lover On that dark radio Had a soul made me so lonely Hands pressed cold against the phone The young stars One, alignment. Aligning our work with our values and higher purpose. Two, envisioning. Seeing the desired future for ourselves. Three, resilience. The ability to overcome obstacles in our path. Combined, we hope these practices constitute a complete package of tools to help you find out how you want your life to unfold and to navigate the path to get there. Alignment Having fun for a living Alignment means aligning our work with our values and higher purpose. Half-jokingly, I think of alignment as finding a way to never have to work again for the rest of your life and still get paid. The secret is to create a situation in which your work is something you do for fun, so you are doing it for your own entertainment anyway, and somebody just happens to pay you for it. And since you are nice to them, you do not want to say no to their money. I know of many successful and highly productive people in this situation. Warren Buffett is a famous example, still working, er, having fun at work, in his 80s. Norman Fisher once told me he has never worked a single day in his life, even though he is one of the most sought-after Zen teachers in the country and is busier than most Silicon Valley professionals I know. There's a blue flashing light Someone's in trouble somewhere tonight As the flickering neon stands ready to fuse The wind blows away all of yesterday's news Well, they've locked up their daughters And they've battened the hatches They always could find us But they never could catch us through the grease streak window of an all-night cafe We watch the arrested get taken away And that cigarette haze is ecology be As the horse and the drums falling from the street
What's the name of this uh, radio program that I've been making? I don't know. Bill's Big Bag of Onions. Bill's Big Bag of Onions. Are you sure? Yes. another one of those big bags that Bill has filled with onions. My dad was a silent, impenetrable fortress, hiding behind a stern stare or a curt comment. For most of my 35 years, I either ignored him or attempted, without success, to have him acknowledge me or my accomplishments. Neither extreme satisfied me. When I steered clear of him, I avoided face-to-face -face rejection, but I still longed to have a relationship with him. Often, when I engaged him in conversation, his gruff responses hurt my feelings. I felt trapped in a no-win situation. My relationship with my mother was much different. Even though my parents and I lived 125 miles apart, Mother and I shared our feelings in weekly letters and telephone calls. 
Mother knew I longed for a better relationship with Daddy, but had no suggestions on how to obtain it. Her understanding and hugs helped, but did not eliminate my desire to feel close to Daddy. Throughout this struggle, I harbored a dark secret, one I did not even share with Mother. I was afraid that even though Daddy was older than Mother, she would die first, leaving me to cope with my uncommunicative father. My fear became reality when Mother was diagnosed with bone cancer. The prognosis? Three to four years. mail carried by Titus are messages to the legate of Legio 20, Valeria Victrix, the commander of one of the legions currently building Hadrian's Wall across the north of the province of Britannia. 
It is not exactly that the Emperor doubts the loyalty of this legate. However, Hadrian has many enemies in the Senate, and he would like to be completely certain that the commander of an entire Roman legion is not among them. Therefore, as well as the official messages that Titus will carry to the governor in Britain, the messenger has been carefully briefed on certain delicate questions that he will put personally to the governor on the emperor's behalf. On his return to Rome, Titus will again hand over the official mail. Then he will proceed to a little-known office on the Palatine Hill, where he will report verbally to the head of the government's speculatores the result of his private conversation with the provincial governor. This is why the emperors prefer to have a single trusted messenger go the distance. Under this system, not only is one man responsible for the security and integrity of the mail from end to end of the journey, but the messenger can also carry verbal communications too sensitive to be put to parchment. As one such trusted imperial messenger, Titus has made the trip to Britain several times, and not always starting from Rome. Hadrian is a highly peripatetic ruler, and Titus still recalls with a shudder those long hauls from Egypt to Britain. Oi, oi, you're listening to Bill's Big Pack of Onions. question, which beer do you want, Mary, went down at the end. When she puts her nose to a glass, though, something switches on. She sits straighter, and her words come out faster, lit by interest and focus. It smells like a campfire to me also, smoky, like wood, charred wood, like a cedar chest, like a cigar, tobacco, dark things, smoking jackets. She sips from the glass. Now I'm getting the chocolate in the mouth. Caramel, cocoa nibs. 
I sniff the ale. I sip it, push it around my mouth, draw blanks. I can tell it's intense and complex, but I don't recognize any of the components of what I'm experiencing. Why can't I do this? Why is it so hard to find words for flavors and smells? For one thing, smell, unlike our other senses, isn't consciously processed. The input goes straight to the emotion and memory centers. Langstaff's first impression of a scent or flavor may be a flash of color, an image, a sense of warm or cool, rather than a word. Smoking jackets in a glass of Noel, Christmas trees in a hoppy, resinous India pale ale. It's this, too. Humans are better equipped for sight than for smell. We process visual input ten times faster than olfactory. Visual and cognitive cues handily trump olfactory ones. That night, we pulled into the town of Atborough. We were due a long stop here, so Mike and Sally decided to take a stretch and to try and find us some water. We'd drunk nearly 30 litres between us, and even that hadn't been enough. They came back with water, Pepsi, and ice cream. Sally looked exhausted, and they had had to force their way back in past five newcomers who insisted that they had reserved seats. It was a mad situation in which tempers were more than a little frayed. The corridor was so crowded now that she couldn't get to the toilet that way at all. 
Tears finally fell as she sat wedged in a heap of total misery. I could see that Mike was also close to the edge. Not with sickness, but with the frustration of not being able to do anything to help her. Eventually, she got to the loo by climbing down the outside of the jolting train on a thin metal bar that ran along at foot level. Even when there, she still had to push her way back into the carriage and then persuade the inhabitants of the now stinking, stifling box to get out. She had to do that several times before we finally got to Khartoum. By this time, there were 16 of us in the compartment and with a little grin, I longed for the relative comfort of the previous night. The only way to sleep was to take it in turns to hang half in, half out of the window. White dust swirled in and covered everything and everyone. There was still room for the journey to get worse. So, of course, it did. Look here, you're listening to Big's Big, to Bill, Bill's Big Bag of Onions. managers who I also interviewed were telling me that in the first week they take an employee out to lunch and say, I know that you're going to want to get another job. And so I am here to help train you to get the skills you need to be able to leave this company. I think companies now are no longer encouraging company loyalty. They are expecting there to be a certain amount of turnover. And they had to come up with another emotion for to link people to the business, to get the kinds of workers that they wanted now that they no longer promise company loyalty. And so I think they've turned to passion. But passion cuts both ways. And so recruiters would tell me that they now love to talk people out of their current jobs by telling them, well, you don't feel passionate about it anymore. And that's also bad for your coworkers. You really need to work in a place where you're passionate. And so you should come be hired by me. They no longer have the attentive, thoughtful audience that they used to have because people are now, there's so much turnover in companies that 
they now have to start expecting that the people who liked them two or three years ago have a job somewhere else. The, the, the kind of the good teams that they have established are going to be moving elsewhere. And so they need to start reorienting themselves. I, I don't happen to like this, by the way. FM with Bill. It was the onions. Big bag of onions. It was the onions. Big bag of onions. It was the onions.
we live in an age now where, where cricket, in terms of played over three or four days, has become very boring. Everybody wants to watch cricket matches that last half an hour. But uh, in these days, um, there were rock star-like cricketers such as W.G. Grace and C.B. Fry and Prince Ranjit Singhji and others who um, captured the public imagination in a way that probably no cricketers have done in the last 50 or 60 years. And uh, cricket became uh, an organised sport, if you like, in terms of having a county championship. Initially from 1873, then it was reconstituted in 1890. And on Saturdays, people would flood into cricket grounds and, and watch cricket. Uh, and indeed, uh, many people didn't have to work, uh, who lived on private incomes, would, would go there on the other uh, five days of the working week. Uh, cricket wasn't played on Sundays at a professional level. And uh, newspapers, which were also becoming popular at the time uh, and having a wider audience and wider readership, uh, would write about these cricketers and uh, uh, lionise them and say how brilliant they were. And of course there was this social divide, rather as you had in society, between gentlemen and players. You had professional cricketers who uh, were paid to play and they were usually captains led by uh, amateurs, some of whom were genuinely amateurs, uh, many of whom were shamateurs. They claimed not to be paid, but people like W.G. Grace found private sponsors who, who bankrolled and paid them great amounts of money to play cricket professionally.
the other gentleman that I spoke to, he said that he was totally disappointed that he couldn't die for the country because it was really genuine, pure belief as a young man that he needed to do this in order for his country to to win the war. It was fascinating um, because he was a very nice, calm gentleman that you just never really expected him to be someone who would be willing to crash into an enemy target. But only 75, 80 years ago, he was he was just that. And he was very strong when I asked how he felt about how kamikaze pilots are now used as a comparison or parallel to extreme jihadists, those suicide bombers. He said, you know, it was it was my youth. Kamikaze was my youth. And it's really disheartening to see how it's almost been manipulated by the later generation. I kept asking him, you know, if he had any second thought when he was told to go. You know, his mother traveled for hours to go and see him the night before he was supposed to take off. And, you know, he said he was really surprised to see her. He was very happy to see her, but he didn't really feel that he didn't want to die or any of the, I guess, you know, the natural feelings that I thought he might have. So, you know, to be honest, I couldn't, I still don't know where that kind of genuine belief came from. Uh, to get back to the, uh, the warning that I've received, you may take it with how many, however many grains of salt you wish, that the brown donuts that are circulating around us are not specifically too good. Of course, it's your own trip, so be my guest, but uh, please be advised that there is a warning on that one, okay? Do not eat the brown donuts. It's your Bill's big bag of onions.
Yesterday afternoon, I went for that job interview. It was the worst experience in my life. For some reason, I put on my resume that I could speak Japanese, which is a total lie. The job had nothing to do with Japanese, so I guess I just thought I would put it down to make myself look more well rounded. I never thought that they would actually test me on it. It turns out that the guy interviewing me had lived in Tokyo for eight years. His Japanese was great. The first thing he said to me was something in Japanese, which I obviously did not understand. I felt so nauseous. I had absolutely no idea of what to do, so I just replied in English Hey, your Japanese is pretty good. He said, Thanks, but what about you? It says here on your resume that you can speak it. I said, Oh? Oh, that must have been a typo. <laughs> okay, good. So that was an interesting story. It sounds like that person really got caught doing something they shouldn't have, right? They say, got caught. don't get caught with your pants down. Right, you definitely shouldn't do that. That means, that means don't get caught in a lie. Right. Or don't yeah. get a, caught in a situation that you don't want other people to see you in. Yeah, so you lied and you got, you got burned. Right. You got burned for the lie. Right, you got caught... Yep, uh, <laughs> not good, not good. But anyway, hey, he tried it. He Whatever, did. sure. You know, it can happen.
Mama, that girl has a red cardigan. And that one. And that one. I explain why most of the children in our neighborhood always seem to be wearing the same outfit. It is their school uniform. My three-year-old looks quizzical. But what's uniform? As we keep walking towards Edgware Road, past the children in their red jackets and cardigans, past the policemen in their helmets and the street cleaners in yellow reflective vests, past the grocery store where the workers all wear green smocks, past the shisha cafes where women in hijab sit drinking tea, I realize that almost everyone is wearing a uniform. Around here, you need a word to describe the state of not being in uniform. And the English have one, mufti. Mufti has been the slang term for plain clothes in the British Army for more than 200 years. Army officers in their downtime often wore dressing gowns, smoking caps, and slippers that resembled the traditional dress of a Muslim cleric. A mufti is an expert in Islamic law who is entitled to rule on religious matters. For example, issuing a fatwa. This is an odd juxtaposition, to say the least. Because mufti is just one of the many words of English borrowed from India. A comprehensive list can be found in Henry Yule and A.C. Burnell's Hobson Jobson, being a glossary of Anglo-Indian colloquial words and phrases and of kindred terms, etymological, historical, geographical, and discursive. 1886.
listen to YCSS, your community and sports show, here on Cone Radio. Brought to you by Bill Lawrence and Ian Talentire, and in a sense, but not technically speaking, Adrian Cohen as well. YCSS offers a blend of community news, chin-wagging, humour and music, here on 106.6 FM, every Thursday at 8pm. Stay in for it. I'm Bill Lawrence. Join me again soon for another big bag of onions. You know what uranium is, right? It's a thing called nuclear weapons and other things, like lots of things are done with uranium, including some bad things. Nobody talks about that. I didn't do anything for Russia. I've done nothing for Russia.